Welcome everyone to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. This is a series we do every, well, mostly every Wednesday evening, um, in which we're kind of trying to be dedicated to the application of reason, individualist ethics. Uh, these are products of the Enlightenment. Sometimes it seems like we're headed for another Dark Ages, as as uh, as various flavors of collectivism vie for power here in the West. We've got kind of a collectivist necrosis eating away at the individualist foundations of Western civilization, but it's not fueled by reason. It's fueled by emotions, by hype, by manipulation, propaganda, sometimes vitriol. And it's not even motiv motivated by uh, genuine concern for humans as such, but usually motivated by psychological dysfunction, projection, often masked in performative concern for the public. Uh, but, you know, pretty much eager to sacrifice any individual members of the public as much as required, uh, which when the motivation is psychological is, is everyone. Uh, anyway, we don't have to be headed for the dark ages for a dystopian future because we know the antidote to collectivism. We know the antidote to sophistry and histrionics. And on this series, Dangerous Thoughts, we're focused on relearning how to apply reason and individualism to our lives so we can make actual progress as a culture progress towards a world in which individual rights are respected and our interactions with each other are voluntary and healthy, as opposed to the fake progress that the progressives want to make, which is basically just a slow march to administrative tyranny. Uh, but they gussy it up in feel-good emotionalism, so you can they can dupe the naive people. Um, but that's our focus here on Dangerous Thoughts, application of reason and individualist ethics. Um, we're trying to foster a resurgence of, uh, think of it as like the greatest hits of the Enlightenment ideas ideas uh we look at all of them ones that matter the most we try and uh try and encourage them bring them about teach people about them and apply them to our lives welcome if you're new don't forget to like share subscribe blah 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 all that stuff i don't feel like i'm not in the marketing mood welcome people in chat uh today's agenda um is a little bit different periodically i like to do a show focused um or at least that includes Q&A from the community. It doesn't have to be necessarily focused on that, although it's nice if I can rely on uh, you know, questions and we can do a whole show that way. The last time we did a show like that was in May. Uh, so it's time. It's time to do another one. That's what we're doing today. If you want to call in with a question or comment, you can follow the link that I posted a link in chat. Uh, I think there's a link also if you're on our Discord server, you'll see it there. Um, you don't have to have a question. You can have a counter argument or a comment or something um and if you can't or don't want to be on camera you can post post your stuff in chat i'll try to get to it but obviously i'm going to prioritize anyone who actually calls in nihao greg the baritone uh in chat so so yeah got a couple topics to discuss while we're waiting so kick it off people come in late and uh I didn't want to just get to this point in the show and then sit here and twiddle my thumbs until someone wanted to talk. So we got a couple other topics. Uh, very important one. <laughs> Since this show is called Dangerous Thoughts, I thought maybe maybe we would begin by discussing Dangerous Thoughts. That's right. Uh, that is that is Beyonce uh, that you see on the screen. Uh, Beyonce, from what I can tell, based on the spelling of her name, apparently is a French Musician? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, Beyonce was in the news uh, recently. Let's see if you can pull up 
I'll pull up the news. <sighs> it's so sad. I don't actually listen to Beyonce, so. Uh, here's the headline from an NPR article. Always NPR is always good for some laughs. Beyonce will change a lyric in her latest album after accusations of ableism. <gasps> ableism. Ableism, bae. She's going to change her lyric. Uh, I don't want to read this whole thing, but she used the word spaz. She used the word spaz. Apparently that is bad. Um, in fact, Hannah Davini is the, uh, here, let's, let's share, let's share that article. I should probably make it so I can just switch, uh, switch tabs more easily. That'll be easier. Here we go. Hannah, Hannah Davini is the catalyst for this change. She wrote this article. When Beyonce dropped the same ableist slur as Lizzo on her new album, My Heart Sank. Because we care about Hannah's heart. And uh, apparently it is sinking, like the Titanic. Because a pop star who uses the word nigga in her songs also used the word <clears throat> spaz. <laughs> yes, yes. That's where we are culturally. In case you're wondering, just so you know, let's look at, here's her use of the word. Here's her lyrics. Um, I mean, they are, I think, really, um, I think, really, Homer would be jealous. It is It is poetry. Got a lot of bands, got a lot of Hermes on me, got a lot of bands, got a lot of Ivy on me. Anyway, she goes on uh, with some solipsism, and then she gets to... Where is it here? Oh, some yummy, yummy, yummy. Make that bummy heated. You know, good stuff. Uh, spazzing on that ass. Spaz on that ass, she says. Personally, I was offended um, when I saw that. It's a good thing we have Hannah protecting us from the word spaz. But uh, in all seriousness, I did want to... I did, I did want to actually... Talk about this a little bit. My emotional reaction to this is a mixture of kind of disgust and approval or disapproval. <laughs> uh, Freudian. Uh, no, disgust and disapproval at the request to change the lyric. I mean, I think it, you know, I kind of had an eye roll and I was like, you got to be kidding me. She wants, she's pissed off about the word spaz. Um, but on this show, if you'll notice at the beginning, I didn't say this is dedicated to Carter's emotional barfing. Uh, our emotions aren't arguments, even mine. Um, so I can't say it's stupid because I feel like it's stupid. I mean, I can, but I can't expect anyone else to be convinced. That's not an argument. So um, I thought about this a bit. And I was trying to think, well, okay, is my is my emotional response actually rational here? Is this even a moral question? Because it could be amoral. It could be like, there's just no right or wrong answer. Um, it's tough here because we're talking about derogatory speech. Um, theoretically, although the way she uses it isn't derogatory, but, you know, spaz apparently is, is used often as, you know, derogatorily, which is, you know, it's a way of being mean, at least a little, even if in jest and sometimes being mean is justified, but it makes it harder to talk about. Now, obviously also we wouldn't want to legally limit speech. So that's not the question. The question, this is a cultural question. This is, um, you know, it's not anti-individualist per se to have accepted some sort of cultural norms. 
right? And of course, there are going to be people in a culture that push the boundaries and break them. And there are going to be times when boundaries are more restricted, uh, restrictive, and that's that's a conversation we should have. Um, but basically, what we're talking about here is what's polite. And obviously, what's polite can vary from culture to culture. Uh, and it isn't always traceable to ethics, right? In some cultures, finishing the food on your plate is rude. In some cultures, not finishing the food on your plate is rude. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's arbitrary uh, and it does change over time. So it might actually be difficult to make an argument that culture should be one particular way or another. Um, so the best I could come up with here was to examine my own emotional response on this, explain to you why it bothers me, and you guys can react and tell me I'm wrong. It shouldn't bother me. It's my own, I don't know, emotional road blockage, or you think there's something to this. So um, the reason that it bothers me, the reason that I, it's like an eye roll, and I think it's ridiculous, and I don't support Beyonce changing her lyric, or Lizzo, who apparently, I guess, I guess there's a person named Lizzo who's also a singer, who apparently also changed a lyric at the behest of the same activist um, a couple weeks ago. But I think this, you know, there's been an attempt in our culture recently, uh, I mean, by the last several years, to undermine standards for behavior. And I'm going to use a different example than spaz. I'm going to use the word retarded as an example, because that's one that people always, like, that's kind of, a, lo a lot of people have decided they can't say that. I still say it derogatorily, um, and a lot of people think that they can't. Um, and uh, so I want to talk about that. You know, people in the 80s when I was growing up, they, we would have all agreed that using the word retarded derogatorily, if you're referencing someone who is actually mentally retarded, would be like not just impolite, but like really bad, right? And and the reason for that would be that they can't help it. You, you can't, you know, if you're born, if you have Down syndrome or whatever. Uh, and, and mental retardation was viewed, some of us still view it this way, mental retardation was viewed as a deficiency. Um, there was a standard for for what we kind of expect out of people in society generally, and it was better to not be mentally retarded. Uh, the norm was to not be mentally retarded. Um, and of course, actual mental retarded people don't meet that standard. But in polite society, we recognize that that's not through a fault of their own. So to ridicule them for that plight is considered, you know, horribly rude and and mean. And in fact, Sympathy is usually in order, not ridicule, because it's recognized that they're at a disadvantage through no fault of their own, and it is a disadvantage. And so, you know, you don't you don't ridicule someone for being actually mentally retarded. Um, but using the word retarded to ridicule someone who isn't actually mentally retarded was kind of common in the 80s, at least when I was growing up where I was in, in New York. It was considered rude, but not, but like appropriately rude, right? It wasn't considered so mean as to be malevolent, right? It wasn't like, oh my God, right? Um, you can't say that. Like that wasn't a thing. Um, and why was it okay uh, to be mean in that way or to be rude in that way? Well, calling someone retarded was an exaggerated way to highlight an egregious intellectual error they had made usually, right? Or maybe a series of errors that they made often. Um, so it was, you're highlighting a, a failure of theirs to meet an intellectual standard when they presumably actually have the capacity to meet the standard of, of, of normal intelligence. So in other words, it was their fault. They were being sloppy or just, you know, 
lazy or whatever, and they were failing to meet a basic standard that they ought to be able to meet. So it was a mocking way to, you know, that's retarded or you're being retarded or whatever. Was it rude? Yeah, but fundamentally it was about holding people to a standard. So um, people who could be expected to meet that standard were held to that standard um, and, you know, kind of mocked if if they if they didn't or if someone made a really bad argument you might say that right um so i think for the word spaz the same thing is basically true there's a standard of self-control right some people literally can't control themselves right and they deserve sympathy for that i think um but it's a standard Nonetheless, calling someone a spaz is mocking in the same way as calling someone, uh, you know, a retard was and is still for those those who use it. It's an exaggerated way to point out failure to meet a cultural norm standard, which is a reasonable standard. Um, like, you know, if you're <laughs> being kind of crazy, people would say, oh, you're a spaz because, you, you know, you're moving around and, and making spasmodic gestures and, and whatever you're like, you're kind of unpredictable and it seems like you're out of control well that's not behavior that we normally sanction of course there are people who have a physical reason that they they can't be in physical control and we don't generally we're not generally mean to them and say you're a spaz so we you know in the same way that mentally retarded people who you know you feel sympathy for them um so calling someone a spaz is just an exaggerated way to point out a failure so my reason for the negative reaction here is, like I said, there's this trend to normalize psychological dysfunction, dysfunction in general. And I think normalizing it is bad because normalizing dysfunction undermines standards for behavior. I mean, look at people, people in their Twitter bios are bragging about, I have, you know, borderline personality disorder. I have anorexia. I have, you know, they make stuff up. Look, I've got, I've got DID or whatever, right? Um, Multiple personality disorder. I forget what the ID stands for. Um, it's and it's near ubiquitous at this point. And I think behavioral standards are important, especially a couple, especially reason as a standard of communication as opposed to emotional, uh, you know, reactionary emotional crap. Which is when when you normalize psychological dysfunction, you're you're removing reason as the standard. You're saying, well, for this person, it's not the standard. You can't hold them to that standard because they have blah blah blah, whatever it is, right? Um, and it's also removing personal responsibility, right? And you can't have political freedom without personal responsibility. Those two go together. So this erosion of standards, I think, is an invitation to be managed like livestock. Progressives are, progressives are eager to build the farm for all of us. Um, and erosion of standards of behavior culturally uh, is an invitation to just treat us like animals because we can't seem to have standards for ourselves. Now, Hannah's argument. Oh, thank you. Dissociative identity disorder. That's what DID is. Um, you know, H Hannah's argument here, um, I'll just read her argument for, uh, that she gave to Lizzo. Hey, Lizzo, my disability cerebral palsy is literally classified as spastic diplegia, diplegia, where spastic spasticity refers to unending painful tightness in my legs. Your new song makes me pretty angry plus sad. Spaz doesn't mean freaked out or crazy. It's an ableist slur. It's 2020, it's 2022, do better. So that, that was her argument that got Lizzo to change um, her lyric. And apparently that's the same argument that's getting um, Beyonce. 
Now let's just look this up. Spastic uh, diplegia. Well, the word spastic, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, several definitions. First one, 1A, it's a pathological definition of the nature of a spasm or a sudden contraction characterized or affected by spasmodic symptoms or movement. Spasmodic, by the way, means occurring or done in brief, irregular bursts caused by, subject to, or in the nature of a spasm or spasms. The second definition of spastic is performing involuntary contractile movements. The third, 3A, is affected with spastic paralysis. And you get down to 3B, you start getting into some derogatory uses. Uh, in weakened use, uncoordinated, incompetent, foolish, stupid slang. Offensive. Okay. Now, by the way, I, I, I'm sorry that this woman has cerebral palsy. That's horrible. I wish she didn't. I wish no one had cerebral palsy. Um, but Beyonce, first of all, Beyonce wasn't even using it derogatorily, right? She's using it correctly as a feels. I assume as a physical description, spazzing on that ass, spaz on that ass. I'm not 100% sure what she means by that, and I really don't want to think too deeply about the nature of her lyrics, but, um, you know, it seems like it is of the in the vein of the occurring or done in brief irregular bursts kind of definition. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, so couch fainting over this lyric, which is what, uh, well, Hannah's doing a little bit more performance than couch painting, but it's it's a performative injury, not an actual energy in injury. She's not being hurt by this. Um, she can say she feels sad or whatever, but uh, you know, taking her seriously promotes hypersensitive victim culture, which is the opposite of individual responsibility and self-reliance. I think she's being narcissistic and attention-seeking. I think this is a power play. Beyonce wasn't talking to her. Beyonce wasn't talking about people with cerebral palsy. She wasn't talking about anyone. She wasn't referencing your condition in any way. She wasn't even using it derogatorily, by the way. This has nothing to do with helping people with cerebral palsy. Uh, this person just wants power over other people's speeches. And uh, I know that we're not supposed to pick on someone like Hannah Devaney because we're supposed to feel bad for her, which I do feel bad that she has cerebral palsy, but that doesn't, uh, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to let her use that as an excuse to not have her ideas criticized. Uh, she's being a little Napoleon about this. She is, she wants to have power over other people's speeches and she's doing a performative I'm injured thing because it gets her attention. Uh, it doesn't actually help anyone with cerebral palsy. And I don't think it makes society better. Uh, I think it makes it makes it worse that we are having to kowtow to the, the most hypersensitive person who happens to tweet about our lyrics. Now, that's probably the last time I will ever defend Beyonce, although who the hell knows? It's it's a crazy year. So maybe. Beverly says, Carter's right. We should just be meaner to people generally. Yeah, that's what I, that's exactly what I said, Beverly. Good job. All right. I think we still have no one uh, who wants to argue with me. That means, by the way, if you don't come in and argue or question, I'm just going to assume that you completely 100% agree with everything I've said. So thank you. Um, all right. Let's do another fun one before we get into I do want to talk about the Harvard case um, in a moment because uh, I think it's I think it's I think it's going to be important. But 
Beverly's uh, Beverly's significant other sent me this, uh, and uh, well, we can call him her insignificant other, really, because we do like to pick on him. But uh, but he sent this over, and uh, I like the business plan. This is a good new business plan. I if you if anyone is low on cash and really looking for a way to make some money, and eh, this is what I recommend now. Man claims to have sold dozens of ghost guns at Houston gun buyback event. Uh, so what he did, we don't have to read the whole thing, but what he did, he claims that he uh, he 3D printed firearms. <laughs> there was a Houston had a gun buyback event. He 3D printed firearms. Um, and he exchanged them for the buyback. And of course, it cost him much less to print each gun. Let's see what he says. Each gun cost him about $3 to make. On Saturday, he says he exchanged 62 3D printed guns with Houston leaders and was given $50 per firearm. So that's those are great margins. Um, and uh, I, I completely, this is a scam. It's a grift, but it's a grift and a scam against stupid uh, governments. So, hey, I'm all for that. It's like the lottery. It's a tax on people who are bad at math. So this is a tax on leftists. Uh, unfortunately, um, they're using our tax dollars to do it. But maybe they'll get the idea uh, that this doesn't work eventually. I think Houston has said they're not going to do this anymore. But good for this guy. 3D print your way to success. <laughs> Dawn says, is it even possible to think deeply on the nature of her lyrics? <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, do you really want to know what she meant? By those lyrics, Dawn. I don't know. I don't. Uh, you know. All right. Let's talk about. Let's talk about Harvard. So there is a lawsuit uh, that has now reached the Supreme Court, and uh, let me just—I'm going to pull it up. This is page twenty-eight. Let me just let me just pull it up for you guys to see, because you know visuals are so exciting. All right. So hopefully you can see that. Uh, this is Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated, which is the petitioner versus the president and fellows of Harvard College. Um, so that's the lawsuit that you'll hear, uh, being talked about. This had been bundled together with a similar case, uh, involving the university of North Carolina, but after, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, uh, joined the Supreme court, they had to split the cases because she is on the board of overseers at Harvard. So there's a conflict of interest here. Or, uh, she needed to recuse herself. I don't think she's legally required to recuse herself, uh, but it's expected, and I think it would raise a lot of eyebrows if she didn't. So she she recused herself. So uh, so now this case is by itself, and this is a case about admissions discrimination by Harvard against Asians. Um, and this is important because it, it might overturn an earlier case from 2003, um, Gruder versus Bollinger. Um, and that case upheld affirmative action. Um, so a lot of colleges have affirmative action admissions policies. That one was uh, University of Michigan Law School. 
And the decision in 2003, the, the Grutter decision, I'm saying Grutter, but it might be Grutter. Um, but it, it looks like it should be Grutter if I follow the rules of pronunciation, but Grutter bothers me as a word. So I'm going to say Grutter unless someone corrects me. Uh, anyway, the, the, that decision permitted the use of racial preferences in student admissions to promote, uh, diversity, um, that to promote diversity, which we'll, we'll get to. Uh, but that was that case. And, um, I expect the Supreme Court with this one, uh, this Harvard case, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on our Supreme Court, obviously. Uh, but I think they might overturn the 2003 case that permitted affirmative action. Um, and that is what's being asked of them. These petitioners are, are asking this questions presented. Number one. Should this court overrule Grutter versus Bollinger and hold that institutions of higher education cannot use race as a factor in admissions? Right. So this is a this is a big question, um, and it obviously all relates back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, <laughs> Zero fucks in chat says. Harvard? Never heard of it. Mm. Yeah. Apparently, it's a very uh, expensive school on the East Coast. I don't, I don't know. Uh, they turn out lizard people who get jobs uh, in world governments. Anyway, um, look, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we've talked about this before. Uh, I've, I've talked about some issues I have with it previously. Um, there's a lot of collectivist classifications uh, of people, which does open up when you start collectivizing people, when you start, you know, viewing them as members of different classes or races or whatever you want to do, rather than individuals, you open yourself up to equity arguments, right? Because then you, you open yourself up to me, people making arguments like, well, there's a disparity of outcome. Therefore, that's evidence of wrongdoing, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've talked previously about, <coughs> excuse me, how even uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, kind of most famous uh, papers uh, about intersectionality, introducing intersectionality, I think 1989, there was mapping the margins and uh, I don't know, I forget the two, the titles of the two papers. It's been a while. But in, in these papers, I, I've, I've said this before that uh, she makes a, in the context of the Civil Rights Act, she's making a valid argument in the sense that when you group these people, uh, when you group people up into different classes of people, different categories, it will cause problems at the intersections of those categories. It'll cause other problems as well, but the, the intersectional problems that arise that she uses, that she has a, she cites a few legal cases. Those are like, that's legitimate. If you're looking at, uh, if you're looking at groups of people in that way, those that does arise. And of course that will always rise and you'll have endless groupings and it's not solvable unless you treat people like individuals. Uh, of course, that's not her conclusion. Her conclusion is, uh, let's go crazier with intersectionality. Um, but it opens, you know, the Civil Rights Act and stuff like that opens this up. It opens up the um, arguments here. And Title VI is is the part that's in question here um, that that is related to this Harvard case. So I'm just going to pull up Title VI so we can take a look at it because uh, I think it's just, 
it's important to see what the language is. And we're going to see where I think there were some, maybe some errors made in writing this. <laughs> so civil rights requirements, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So this is the, just this one paragraph I'm going to read. And this is, this is the meat. Title VI prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, or national origin in any program or activity that receives federal funds or other federal financial assistance. Programs that receive federal funds cannot distinguish among individuals on the basis of race, color, or national origin, either directly or indirectly, in the types, quantity, quality, or timeliness of program services, aids or benefits that they provide, or the manner in which they provide them. This prohibition applies to the intentional discrimination as well as to procedures, criteria, or methods of administration that appear neutral but have a discriminatory effect on individuals. By the way, you can see right there, there's some wedge for equity uh, and outcomes-based evaluations. Then discriminatory effect on individuals because of their race, color, or national origin. Policies and practices that have such an effect must be eliminated unless a recipient can show that they were necessary to achieve a legitimate non-discriminatory objective. Even if there is such a reason, the practice cannot continue if there are alternatives that would achieve the same objectives, but that would exclude fewer minorities. Persons with limited English proficiency must be afforded a meaningful opportunity to participate in the programs, blah, blah, blah. The rest of it doesn't, doesn't matter for this particular case. So you probably notice some errors here philosophically right away. Um, but let's let's talk about this act. Uh, first of all, I think the most important thing to notice here is federal funds are the hook, right? Federal funds are the hook. They 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 tax you or print money and or borrow money. Therefore, you know, which is another you know, printing money is another form of tax. Borrowing money is, is taxing your kids. Um, so they they using force steal money from you so in some way uh, indirectly and then they use that money um to fund things but then of course the funding doesn't come uh with no strings attached which you know you could argue if you wanted you could say well maybe it shouldn't it shouldn't come with no strings otherwise they'll be funding horrible things uh i would say you're right it shouldn't come with no strings uh it shouldn't come at all <laughs> actually it's what i would argue but uh, so federal funds are the hook, right? And then most of this, the beginning of this, kind of sounds reasonable. Well, okay, if they're gonna, if you're gonna have them, re, you know, require, if you're gonna require something for them taking federal funds, well, it sounds reasonable to say don't discriminate based on race. But they couldn't even stick with that principle in this, right? E even even that principle was too much for them to stick with. They they had to have caveats, right? So let's look at a couple of them. Um, first they say, you know, applies to intentional discrimination, but also stuff that appears to be neutral, but has a discriminatory effect on individuals. Well, that invites outcomes-based analysis. And what if, I'm just going to throw this out here. What if there are differences between groups that actually might result in different output or outcomes? Would you therefore conclude that this is, a, it's, is that a discriminatory effect, right? If the basketball team has very few Chinese people, is that discriminatory? 
because height is a, is a requirement. I don't know, right? And then they go on. Then they can't even leave it at that. They can't even apply this principle, which, again, seems like a reasonable principle. I don't think it should be federally mandated because I don't think these funds should exist, but it is a good kind of moral principle to not discriminate, right? Uh, they can't even leave it at that. Policies and practices that have such an effect must be eliminated unless, oh, oh, there are, it is okay to do that sometimes. Unless a recipient can show that they were necessary to achieve a legitimate non-discriminatory objective. I, I just want to ask the obvious question. What the hell does that mean? This is non-objective language. Um, <laughs> they had no idea how to define the exceptions. I mean, you read this and it's like, oh, they had no idea. They're like, well, there should be exceptions, but we have no idea how to define them. We're going to be too intellectually lazy to try and articulate what the exceptions are, or we're afraid to articulate them because we'll get shit from people. So we're going to throw it a word. Hey, how about we're going to rely on how, what, how people interpret the word legitimate? What's legitimate? To whom? By whose standards? Well, that's going to change depending on who's sitting on the bench. And it does. Right. So, you know, in the in the Gruder versus Bollinger case, uh, diversity was considered a legitimate non-discriminatory objective. I'm going to read you. This is part of uh, the majority opinion. This is by Sandra Day O'Connor with the majority opinion. She said that the Constitution, quote, does not prohibit the law sorry, does not prohibit the law school's narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions to further a compelling interest in obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. She also went on to say that this shouldn't last forever, that in 25 years, we won't need this kind of thing, but in the short term, we, we need it. That was her, that was her argument. Um, and that was the majority opinion. Uh, now, as for this Harvard case, as for this Harvard case, according to the petition that they've filed, um, I was actually fascinated by some of this. Harvard has a history of using um, kind of subjective criteria for excluding races, uh, like character of people or fitness of people. Uh, and they did this to the Jews in the early 1920s, kind of openly. They uh, kind of knew that if they said they were going to discriminate against Jews, they, people would get mad at them. So they uh, developed this criteria. Um, another thing that came, comes out in this is Harvard immediately changed some of their admissions policies and admitted more agents as soon as the lawsuit was filed, which doesn't show guilt, but mm, is questionable. Uh, and, you know, if we go, I didn't read this part of the, of the, Civil Rights Act, but, you know, those exceptions for, hey, you can discriminate if you've got some legitimate reason. Uh, there's an exception to the exception, which is like, well, unless you can come up with race-neutral alternatives that give you the same outcome. And apparently they haven't, Harvard hasn't even tried to do that. Uh, what they have done, they invite uh, African-Americans and Hispanic students with lower uh, PSAT scores to apply, but when they're recruiting whites and Asians, they use higher scores as their, their standard. Um, they have a racial makeup one pager, which is like a report. I guess they're, 
they're so obsessed with race that it's updated daily. Um, so they have this one pager and they go back and they re-examine, uh, they re-examine it to make sure they have the right percentages of every race that they want at, at Harvard. Um, by the way, they, they put Asian Americans as one big race, which the petitioner here in this, um, case doesn't like, but is using that language because that's what Harvard does. They have a lop list. They, they have like a, here's all the people we want to admit, but that's too big for, you know, the number of beds and whatever they have. So, uh, they go back to their lop list and they use race as a reason to lop people off to like, Oh, that person's out there, the wrong race. Um, and I think the best, I think the most interesting thing, the most damning piece of evidence is just to look at this one chart. I mean, These are the admission rates by race and ethnicity and academic decile. So what that means is 10 means you're in the top, the top 10% of the applicants. One means you're in the bottom 10% of the applicants. And let's just look, let's just look at this. This is for Harvard. Let's just look at, for example, um, if you're Asian American and in the top 10%, you have a 12.7% chance of getting in. If you're African-American and way down at four, so like the lower 40%, you have a higher chance. You have a 12.8% chance of getting in. I mean, to me, lo looking at this, to me, this is just massively damning. It's clear that they're playing games with race. And this is one of the this is one of the exhibits in this petition. So, um, Harvard's actually they they actually have an office of institutional research, and there was an article in in 2012 that came out alleging that Harvard had an Asian quota, and so Harvard asked their own office of institutional research to to look into these claims, and according to their own office, they the report found, quote, evidence that Asians are disadvantaged in the admissions process and that Harvard's personal rating was to blame. So basically, they're getting personal points like quality of character and other points for being African-American or Hispanic, and you don't get those. And they get so many points that it's equivalent of like winning a national award or something. It's it's like almost impossible to get that many points um, if you're not African-American or Hispanic. Um there's also these weird arguments in here. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of simplifying it because there's there's more depth in this in this case. There's a lot there's a lot of complexity here. But there's weird arguments about like, well, it's okay to boost applicants, but not to penalize them, which I just think is the most brain dead commandment to take to take seriously. I mean, if there's a limited number of slots, you can't boost someone without penalizing someone else. That's that's how zero sum works, and college admissions are zero sum. So. Uh, also, Harvard's thing isn't temporary. Um, this this case argues that they could fix their 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 problem uh, pretty easily if if they could they could get the racial makeup they wanted if they stopped giving preference to the children of alumni and donors who are mostly white and wealthy. But they don't want to do that. Uh, so you know they got to take it out on the Asians or whatever. Now the ACLU filed an an amicus brief in this case. Um, and I'm just going to read part of their, their amicus brief uh, so you can kind of know where the ACLU is coming from. Obviously, they do not, being the modern ACLU that they are, which is basically uh, a progressive 
activist organization. They say, yet petitioners invite the court to hold that diversity is not a compelling interest. So they they think diversity is a compelling interest. They're saying, hey, the petitioners invite the court to hold that diversity is not a compelling interest and that race-conscious admissions practices contradict the purpose of the 14th Amendment. They ask the court to overturn as a, quote, egregiously wrong, its long-established precedents upholding narrowly tailored race-conscious admissions programs, reaffirmed most recently in Fisher II, 2016. In their view, the Constitution and, T Constitution and Title VI require schools to blind themselves to the reality that race often matters in contemporary society and require this court to reject the considered academic judgment of Harvard University, University of North Carolina, and virtually every institution of higher learning in the world, even if it would lead, as it surely would, to a more racially divided educational experience for countless young people. So ACLU wants the court to leave the... Uh, to leave it the way it is, you can go ahead and discriminate based on race as much as you want. If your purpose is um, a racial diversity on campus, basically. And their argument is, I, I mean, first of all, uh, in case you haven't been paying attention to the ACLU, uh, civil liberties for them have now become collective things. They're, I don't know if they ever were individual liberties, but they're viewed collectively. So uh, the ACLU is now with like, they view everything as this this war between groups. That's this, this collectivist goal to balance group interests. That's you know, um, and historically, that's almost never civil, and it certainly has nothing to do with liberties. So that's that's the ACLU for you. Um, but the problem you have with federal involvement with stuff like this, the problem you have with you know, giving money and then having strings attached, is actually I think this is a complex question. Uh, that you could ask, because you know ACLU is arguing that that diversity is important for college, right? Um, that 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 you know you need to if you got to play games with race, you got to play games with race. You need that racial diversity, racial diversity on campus. Um, well, is it is it important? I'm sure if you want to conclude that ethnic diversity is important to education, you could conclude that. I'm sure you could come up with stuff to support it. If you want to conclude that homogeneity is important, you could probably do that, right? I mean, uh, it was actually a Harvard professor, Robert Putnam, who who uh, begrudgingly concluded that uh, less homogenous uh, neighborhoods had a lower trust factor, even amongst people of the same ethnicity, uh, and that actually uh, mixing ethnicities in neighborhoods actually led to more distrust uh, among even among people of the same ethnicity, not just uh, between ethnicities. So, I mean, you could make arguments that homogeneity is actually important and not diversity. Um, so, aside from the, the, the moral problem, the federal government involvement, there's a practical problem. Problem, I think, when it comes to complex issues like, let's say, you want to heal from a racially fractured society, or you want to you want to like have the best educational experience possible. There's a question of there's a question of uh, pedagogy, right? Like, how do you engineer an educational experience to optimize the outcome? Well, uh, that begs some questions. Like, what's the outcome that you want? Do you want people to believe a certain thing? Do you want them to vote a certain way? Do you want them to be optimally productive? Do you want them to be happy? It really begs the question: Like, what is education? What does it mean? What does it mean to get an education? And do we want the federal government deciding what that means? What does it mean to get an education? I think actually it's a very complex question. 
Um, I've debated people about what it means to get an education. Um, and I think almost everyone has a slightly different definition of what, what they, what they care about in terms of education. It's a complex issue. It should be left just from even just practical reasons. It should be left to the free market. Education is no different than any other product or service. Um, you know, if you think cars or entertainment or food or housing should be left to the free market, so should education. Um, and, and if you leave it to the free market, you'd get some institutions will opt for more ethnic diversity. And at least if it, if they're institutions like Harvard, at least they can be honest about it and be like, yeah, we, this is what we're doing. Okay, fine. Um, some will opt for more ideological diversity, which I happen to think is probably more valuable than ethnic diversity. They can be honest about that. Some won't focus on that at all, but they're going to opt for like just high IQ, high performance. They can be honest about that. Um, and you can go to the university that meets the criteria for what you want. And I, and I think this is another example of the failure of central control and central planning. It, it, enshrines, it enshrines some belief system about the nature and purpose of education, right? And what trade-offs you should make and blah, blah, blah. It's this one-size-fits-all thing. Change is very difficult. And it invites kind of surreptitious behavior from the universities. And you end up with these, these situations where... You know, some court's going to have to interpret what what's value, what's legitimate for an educational purpose. I don't think everyone agrees on that. By the way, your tax dollars, uh, you know, Harvard's only in this lawsuit because they accept your tax dollars. Uh, your tax dollars are subs subsidizing Harvard's experiment here. Uh, and just as a reminder, uh, they have a 53 billion dollar endowment so maybe maybe they could just stop taking tax dollars and discriminate all they want and be honest about it all right i think cheeky mayor's here is that correct i think so can you hear me hey cheeky how you doing good how are you i'm all right i'm all right thanks for coming on what's uh what do you want to chat about so similar uh topic um my company has been growing uh, quite rapidly in the last two years. And um, we have just reached the 150 threshold where now we have to start documenting um, our uh, diversity statistics. You know, how many people of color do you have on your board? How many women? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I've been tapped on the shoulder to be part of the HR committee, blah, 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 um, to try and figure out how we can cultivate a more diverse environment because we are mostly white. Um, mm -hmm. We have lots of women um, in the field, so that's okay. And we've got two women on our board, but um, all we've hired probably a dozen or so um, African-American specifically um, and uh, 10 of them have left for um, better, um, more lucrative um, jobs or, uh, and the other two um, did not meet our criteria on uh, work productivity. <clears throat> so they were dismissed. Um, mm -hmm. So is this, and we do a lot of work with, we don't, with we don't do it with the government the federal government but we work for municipalities who get 
federal funding. Do you think okay. this um, this ruling will affect that? Sorry, say that. Ask that last question again. Well, do you think this ruling, if it goes towards you're not allowed to discriminate based on race, do oh. you think that will affect it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I I assume that if the municipalities that you're working with accept federal funds, and and if we assume that I don't know about the municipalities that you're you're talking about, and I don't really know how many municipalities operate, but let's assume that they're accepting the federal funds and let's assume that they are like many progressive municipalities. Um, they have racial quotas, basically. They've got some reason to be hiring, um, you know, qu quotas, right? They've yeah, got there, you have to have a certain whatever, number right? of minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses right. um, bid for the... Um, right. contracts that we are working right. with. So that might, I, I could see this affecting that. I don't think it would affect your company's requirements because I think, because your company doesn't accept federal funds and the rule that you're talking about, I don't believe is related to this directly. Okay. It's related to this ideology, but I don't think it's related to this directly. Um, and uh, I actually don't know. Yeah, this is a really good question because I don't know. I don't know what the actual. Maybe it is a civil rights. I think it is. I think it is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but it's not Title VI. Um, I think it's a different part of the Act. That's the employer discrimination stuff. And um, I think businesses like yours have two routes they can go. They can meticulously document their hiring process, and. Um, and demonstrate that it's as fair and, and quote, colorblind as possible, um, and then deal with the repercussions of having to justify that, because you probably will if you don't end up with the right mix. Or you view it as a tax, and it basically means you have to spend extra time and resources and money trying to recruit um, the demographics that aren't interested in your business for whatever reason or another, right? Okay. Um, so... So unfortunately, I don't think your company's gonna this isn't gonna help your company directly. It might change how okay. your clients have to operate, but I don't think it's gonna affect your company. So because I'm my I think I found the only HR guy in the entire world that is libertarian leaning. Um he wants heterosexual. <laughs> Ron Swanson. Yeah, <laughs> it's Ron Swanson, exactly. Um he wants heterodox thinking on this committee, and so I've been preparing I'm probably going to be the only right-leaning or libertarian-leaning person on this um, board. So I'm trying to like get ahead of the game and think of, so we were in this um, webinar for how to make your workplace more diverse, blah, blah, blah. Um, and um, they said something like, you need a certain percentage. So I looked it up and in my field there, it's like in the whole country, like 75% white men, 12% um, Latino, um, you know, and, and lower and lower percentages, therefore. So I did a quick calculation and my particular department is fairly close to the average for the whole United States. So like if, 
if I can't, if none of the requirements, people who fit these requirements are interested in a role in our company and the ones that were have decided to move on to a different company, like what do we do? Go find some random person off the street and pay him $60,000 a year to just sit there? Like, I don't, I don't know how to. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, there's two threats and I think one's probably more likely than the other. Um, one threat is that you end up getting sued. Someone doesn't like the, the makeup of your company and, and, um, and you have to defend yourself if you don't have numbers that they like or whatever. Uh, but, and, and so I would, I would make sure that you're doing enough to, nip that in the bud, right? Make sure that that can't be successful. Um, and that is both like, yeah, having to go spend extra time and energy recruiting, um, demographics that you need and also, um, justifying your process, like having a, having a process that, that demonstrates as much as possible. So I think, I think for an argument in, uh, in this arena here, you can still make a, process argument right they're not just going to look at the outcome and say well you don't have enough this uh, of this you know demographic therefore you must be discriminating you can still you can actually counter my understanding is businesses can still counter with saying no 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 here are the steps we've taken to get more of that demographic here's our hiring process uh and and here's our our you know process to check our hiring process to try and make sure it's non-discriminatory as much as possible and this is just where uh this is just where the, you know, this is where the cards fell. Like this is the way the cards fell. Like this is this is what we got. Um, and I think you can you can defend that. I think the real threat is the people that are sitting on this committee are going to want to do. It's like if if I had a company that had 150 people and we had to do this, right? The purpose of the committee, my direction to the committee, that the culture I would try and create in the committee would be. Uh, we need to meet the requirements in order to protect ourselves from crazy people who are going to sue this or, or the government. Right. But that's it. This, this is a, this is a tax on our business. We're trying to build a business. We're trying to be profitable. We're trying to hire the best people regardless of any of that crap. We don't really care, but this committee's job is to make sure we don't get in trouble. And, and that's it. Uh, my guess is that the committee you're on will be populated largely with people who believe in the cause and want to make this a crusade to not just meet minimum requirements and make sure the company doesn't get in, in trouble and can go on, but actually want, this is a vector that social justice warriors use to, to usurp companies. Right. 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 So that this, they will turn this into an activist thing and they will, no number will be good enough. Um, Nothing you're doing will be good enough. There's literally no argument that will stop them. No, they will never say, yes, it's good enough. They will want to constantly, constantly uh, not just increase the the hires and the demographics, but vilify the company. They're going to constantly want to see problems, right? That's going to be their, yeah. their entire mindset. And so uh, that's what you're combating. I I hope your boss knows that the guy who you're talking about, like tapped you to do this. I don't know if he's your boss or whatever, but like I hope he understands that. And um, and if he doesn't, maybe I would sit down and have a conversation with him about it. Uh, if yeah. he's kind of libertarian leaning, 
No, and say, he, look. He definitely doesn't want us to become. I think James Lindsay says uh, the paper clip factory. He doesn't want us to become a uh, activist and then the process that we do. He wants us to do the process that we are and then, you know, maybe address some of these uh, shortcomings if they are shortcomings. So he knows, yeah. and that's the reason, because I told him that I was going to Porkfest and he's like, oh, really great, <laughs> awesome. And, um, you know, so it was, it was re a relief kind of that my HR guy wasn't crazy. But um, anyway. Besides yeah. the point, I think. Yeah, no, I, that's good. That's good that he's that he's not crazy. And I, and I would say then then you need to strategize with him about how to police the committee and just can't have you can't have a single crazy SJW on the committee. Like you can have people who want to meet the rules, but um, the company's got to come first. The, the best interest of the company has to come first. And that's the danger. OK. Right? Um, and I don't, I mean, there's no, like, I wish I could give you a silver bullet. I don't think there's a silver bullet for this is how you stop it. I mean, it's, it's like, if you don't want to get, if you don't want to succumb to the zombie apocalypse, don't put a zombie on your team. Like, right. <laughs> cause they're going to bite someone eventually. And like, it's contagious. So, uh, I mean, that's the best, that's, that's the best analogy I can say. But like, if you're doing the right things, if you're collecting data and can shut someone down like that and convince the rest of the the team that like, no, this is, we are, we're meeting these requirements. We're, we're doing these things, um, you know, and, and kind of move on and don't make it, don't let it become a separate job within the company, like a separate, don't let it become its own entity. Right? So it, minimize the meetings, minimize, like just, Minimize everything, minimize the importance of it, minimize the meetings, minimize uh, the value in it, uh, all that stuff. Okay, this is the last thing, and then I'll let you get to someone else. Um, I So the strategy I was going for is doing, like you said, get gather data, figure out if what where, where we're lacking, and then say, okay, we're competing with firms that have thousands of employees who have to make the same requirements, have to meet the same requirements. And if 2% of the population of my specific um, industry, 2% are black men or black women, then the bigger firms are going to be competing. So do we give a, and I'm going to use their buzzword, are we going to use a pay gap and we have to pay twice? to kind of steal these people away from the bigger companies? How, what um, you, <laughs> you could. Uh, I think you run the risk of poisoning your entire co Like, people will hate you. They'll yeah. find out. People will always find out. I mean, your other employees will hate you. Um, and I think what these committees are doing, what these rules are doing is they're inviting you to commit suicide so that they don't have to kill you. Um, okay. and that's, that's one way you can commit suicide is doing that. I think, um, I, I think if you make offers that are commensurate with other people from, let's say it's a, you're looking for black men and you've got 75%, you know, or you've got some large percentage of white men or, or whatever. If you're making offers to them that are commensurate with the packages that the white people are taking, but, but the blacks are just not wanting 
to work unless they, you know, they're holding out for more money than the white population is, then let them walk, let them, let them hold out for more money. And, uh, that's what I would do (laughs) and say, look, uh, but document it all and be like, look, we offered, we offered to all these people. It's commensurate with all these other people. We can't help it. Right. Um, I don't, I don't know what's happening in your industry exactly, but you're, if you're saying that 10 of the 12 left for better offers, I would almost guarantee that there's a premium being paid to minorities in your industry. If those minorities are underrepresented and people are worried about getting in trouble, like that's probably what's happening. Large companies are probably doing that because large companies are notoriously not transparent. They're happy to try and play games with that. And, um, you know, and frankly, some leftist progressive cultures will be okay with it. I mean, you, you definitely find, you'll definitely find companies where the progressives will be like, yes, they should be getting paid more than me because slavery, right? <laughs> like that's, yeah, that, that will happen. Um, I don't, yeah. I mean, I would need to know a lot more details to give real advice and I'm not a lawyer and, uh, and this is, no, I gotcha. but you know, but I culturally I would say don't sabotage your culture. Don't get your other employees to hate you. You need to have, you need to have people to, you need the company generally to view you as fair, doing the right thing, being transparent about it and not being, and, and just preventing this kind of crusade behavior that's likely to happen. Okay. Right. Cool. So, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that was super helpful. Cheeky. I'm sorry. <laughs> It, you I, know, I wish you had like seven, two plus two. I could say four, and we could be yeah, done. Right, exactly. Yeah, brilliant. I don't even um, know if that would work. Although, luckily, we're in a engineering firm, so two plus two better equal four. Yeah. Well, only in the engineering department. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the outside the engineering department. You know. By the way, one thing that you can do is, um, there are, you know, collectivists often, and and even the nineteen sixty four. Civil Rights Act, they group people in these very broad categories, like Harvard, for example, even, and we were just talking about Asian Americans. I mean, there's Taiwanese and Chinese and Japanese and Philippines. There's like all different kinds of Asian Americans. Um, And some groups, for whatever reason, are more into one particular thing than another. So you might want to find like, maybe there's a bunch of, you know, if you're looking, if you need black men, or black women. Maybe there's a bunch of immigrants from Nigeria who are like really into engineering. I don't, I have no idea. Right. <laughs> like maybe yeah. there's some subcultures that you can go after. they like, okay, we're going to specifically target these particular sub demographics because the hit rates higher, um, you know, and maybe people from, uh, you know, Botswana aren't into coding. I don't know. I, I have no idea. Um, or, you know, people from Detroit are, and people from, you know, Columbus aren't, I have no idea, but I, but that's, I would, I would maybe consider targeting resources there, but view it as a tax, view the whole thing as a tax, set up the mindset that this is a tax, that this is a hoop you have to jump through to satisfy uh, progressive administrative tyrants in DC. Cause that's what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Back to regularly scheduled programming. All righty. Thanks cheeky. <laughs> All right. Cheeky mayor, everyone. Yay. All right. Um, I think actually, I mean, I think actually we can be done soon. I mean, I'm happy to end after an hour. I only definitely wanted to talk about Harvard and Beyonce. So we talked about that. And if we people don't have, I'm going to look through chat 
in a minute. If people have stuff that they definitely want to talk about, I'll try and find it. But otherwise, I don't feel the need to keep going if people don't want to do Q&A or they don't want to have combos. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, okay. I don't see I don't see a lot. So uh I'm happy. Oh wait, would you be open to talking about IP laws? Yeah, I don't know that I would be helpful, but sure, I'll talk about IP laws. Um I think it's an interesting topic about which many libertarians disagree. I'm probably more pro IP than a lot of libertarians. Um So yeah, Coley, jump in and we'll talk about IP laws. In the meantime, we will read some Beyonce lyrics. <laughs> Are you ready? Beverly loves when I read Beyonce. Cool it down, 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 my pretty. Bad, bad bitch, make the bad, bad glitchy. Fine, 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 fine. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you for saving me, Lord Coley. I didn't want to read any more of those. Sure, sure. Um, no, it's just that I recently had an interesting conversation with somebody who is very, very bought into the whole left progressive ideas, talks a lot about representation um, mm -hmm. in media. And uh, I came up with an interesting point where perhaps it's not so much an issue of representation, but an issue of IP. Um, we have such strict copyright laws, right? Um, mm -hmm. That basically allow a original IP holder to <laughs> murder in a financial sense, anybody who tries to do anything close to reflecting their work, um, especially if the company is big and longstanding. If IP laws were changed to allow fan works where it's not an issue of fraud. It's very clearly, I am not the original creator. This is just a work that is born of love of the original work. It is related, but not official. Then I don't think anybody would be anywhere near as mad about swapping out characters uh, for different representations uh, different genders. I mean, you could theoretically change whole elements of the work and you'd still get your kicks and giggles without actually having to try and grab that original IP. Do you think, so you're, I mean, this is interesting. Your contention is that people are upset about replacing Dr. Who with the woman because of IP laws? Like, I'm not, well, I guess I'm not following. They're not thinking about the IP laws. What they're upset about is something that they loved, something that was created one way, and that's what drew them, is now suddenly being changed because somebody else is in charge. They're not oh, thinking I about see. the IP directly. Because no one can make a derivative that they like because it's right. owned by someone. Okay. And people would still be drawn <sighs> to those alternative IPs, I believe, but you wouldn't yeah. be taking the original away. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I could make you and I could sit down and make a Marvel movie that that people liked and that will be fine. Um, right. 
Okay. I mean, I couldn't. Maybe I'm assuming you're a good writer. So, um, <laughs> okay. So this is, I, I think IP laws, it, IP law is interesting to me because, um, first of all, I do think there's a, there is a, I'm going to, right, let me caveat everything. I think what I'm describing would arise in some way in a completely free market, voluntary society. I'm not arguing that we need a government for this. Let's put that on the side. Sure. Uh, we do have a government though. So let's start there. Uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a reason. I think there's a valid reason for IP. Um, I think uh, if you look at just philosophically, man's primary means of survival is his rational mind. Um, what moves humanity forward is not muscle labor. It's not working hard. Those are all good things. Working hard is good. Those but are what sustaining moves... skills, but not necessarily ingenuity skills. That's right. It's the it's the mind. It's the products of the mind that move us forward. It's when people figure out, uh, you know, fi people figure out how to, you know, stick two differently dope pieces of semiconductor together and make it into a you know electrical switch. And from that, you get the entire computer industry and. Like, like, okay, like th that's the ingenuity. And I, and I, and I get that there's never just one person who does all the inventions built on other stuff, but it's the, the product of the human mind is, is valuable. And so just like if I grow corn, you can't steal my corn. If I come up with an idea, um, I think there's a legitimate, um, function in society for, having some boundaries around what other people can do with my idea, assuming that it's, um, you know, something that we all like, I guess, even with a bad idea, right? Uh, right. You'd want to do that. But there's also a trade-off, right? If you look at something like Disney, mm -hmm. I remember, I I'm old enough to remember when they basically bribed all of Congress in order to get the copyright extended on Mickey Mouse and Disney shit. Remember that? Yeah. Part of what I'm thinking of exactly is now, uh, you, you've got your life and then some to exploit uh, an IP, which might I point out, most of Disney's IPs are from older works they did not originally create. Yes, right. Um, they do a lot of uh, uh, cribbing stuff from Hans Christian Andersen and, and modifying mm -hmm. it and whatever, right? Um, and, and interestingly, since we're talking on IP, because I was in the tech space for a while and i did a lot of ip like i made a, you know the 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 success of our first business was uh licensing ip predominantly that we spent a long time huh. developing and working on so i but I'll, I'll say something about tech i think i think there's a lot of screwed up with it i think patents are granted um way too easily uh, i think it's gotten out of control and it's it's a quagmire and you've got basically think about the dmv but instead of like stamping stuff and taking your picture, they have to review complex technical documents and decide whether the prior art is like covers the thing you're doing or whether your invention is new. I mean, it's not going to go well. Uh, and it hasn't, <laughs> it's a mess. Um, so it is a mess, but, but tech stuff, I think it's 19 years and the, and the IP expires. So, um, you know, we've got a we had a window to exploit it, but we couldn't just sit on it for 50 years and then decide later we're going to try and exploit the IP. We had to there was an incentive to do something with it. And there are all, but there are patent trolls. I've also dealt with patent trolls um, in another oh. business that I'm I'm still involved in. Like we would have patent trolls come after us and 
the patent trolls would work the legal system and they would, and you know, we would have some, they, they never made a thing in their lives. They filed some crap patents that usually there was prior art for, or we didn't actually infringe on, but um, they would come after us and they would say, well, we need a hundred thousand dollars to go away. And, you know, we'd sit down with our lawyer and our lawyer would say, yeah, their patent is shit. You could absolutely win and it would cost you more than a hundred thousand dollars. So just pay them. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like sure, and, sure. and a hundred thousand, I mean, this was a small business. A hundred thousand dollars wasn't nothing to us. Um, it, you mm -hmm. know, was, this isn't Microsoft. Um, and you, and you also see, you also see companies do this, like large tech companies collect huge patent portfolios and then have battles over their patent portfolios. And they're like, you know, well, I have 500 patents and you have 650 patents, but blah, blah, blah. and they, they, they leverage them against each other. So uh, I think there's definitely a lot broken with the patent system, but I'm not against the idea of patents. And at least there's, so there's the tech patents, the copyright patents. I liked the idea of them being limited to a person's lifetime, right? Or you could say their life expectancy even maybe or something like, okay, there, there's like some period of time where they have to capitalize it, but capitalize on it. But they, they've, it's weird that they can be assigned to entities and then survive well after Walt Disney's dead, for example. Um, you can keep them alive even so long as uh, you produce something that is related to specific IP within a 20 year span, you revive the IP. Right. And, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Um, and that's how you have companies like, and someone just wrote in chat, <laughs> a G man wrote in chat. If you're Disney, your IP protection never expires. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's kind of the oligarchical nature of our system. Um, and so I think that is definitely a problem. I, for stuff like like Marvel, I mean, since 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 that's what you're bringing up, that, I mean, I don't know if you brought up Marvel specific Marvel specifically, but that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? Yeah, uh, it is, and it's very hot right now. That Marvel thing. Yeah. So, I, I think partly we're trying to solve a problem that's not solvable uh, with IP, and 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 that problem is. Uh, culture is committing seppuku and we've got like just really, really bad psychology and philosophy running companies. And so they're going to ruin stuff. And I don't know that like, okay, you could let other people do it. You know, there's examples where you wouldn't want to let other people do it. You like, what if someone was doing a good job with it? Do you want the the lefties to be? You want you want Disney to be able to go start turning it into crap and mass marketing it and ruining the the universe that you're creating as a small creator? So I think I don't know that throwing out. I I, I know you're not saying throw out IP, but I don't know that that it's this is necessarily solvable. I mean, we've talked about some problems with IP, so. Clearly, that needs to be solved. But I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily solvable through IP. I mean, there's a reason to have derivative works covered and say, well, you know, I, let's say I invent Superman. I I write a bunch of Superman comics. And, you know, you come along and be like, well, I'm going to write a different Superman story. It's, it's a derivative work. And it's like, well, no, but that like that is my character. Like I, I maybe I invented, you know, I spent a lot of time developing it and building the universe and getting people to like Superman. And so 
it's kind of cheating to use my character. Now, I don't think that should last forever. I shouldn't be Disney like, well, you know, decades after I'm dead, there's some corporate entity continuing to, to use it. Um, but, or to continue to claim ownership. So, but, so I see why derivative works would be covered. Um, and I think, that, you know, it's a two edged sword, right? Uh, you can say, well, I, you know, we don't want Disney producing more star Wars by themselves because they, Kathleen Kennedy's ruining it. Um, and we want other people to produce star Wars, but what if, what if they weren't, what if there's a company that wasn't ruining it? Um, like, do we want Disney to be able to steal it and ruin it? Cause they will. Right. Um, so you gotta, I think you gotta be careful a little bit of that. And I think the problem that you're, what's bothering you is culture, not the IP law. I mean, the IP laws have problems. I get it. But the big problem here is like, there's a bunch of people who want to rewrite this crap. And there's a bunch of people who want to use the Marvel universe to push, propaganda that's leftist there's a bunch of people who want to use it to tear down um what they view as you know i don't know (laughs) icons of western culture that they think you know all of western culture should be destroyed because they're angry at their daddy or whatever it is like that's the problem um and i and you know you don't no amount of laws solves a necrotic decrepit culture honestly um I don't think that the IP laws would have to change that much. It would just have to open a bit of a door for alternative works. Um, so what would you suggest? Like, what, what's your suggestion there? Well, I mean, I haven't sat down and grafted out or anything, um, but it seems an awful lot like to me, it's not that hard to determine who the original source is, who the original spark is, so to speak. Um, and if you are interested in that person's, uh, ideas on, on what they originally created, if you think that's the only source that, that really can bring the thing to life, um, then that's your fan base. Those are the people who actually follow the core creation. Um, as long as you're not trying to represent yourself as the original creator, I do think that there is wiggle room in a more free market mindset. Um, you have fan fiction as a whole subculture, huge subculture. Not, not a lot of it's super great. Um, but that would be, I think, determined better by the free market. You write a poorly done fan fiction, it's not going to do very well. Um, so you do actually have a little bit of precedent in the Star Wars universe, the Star Wars extended universe, which I believe was mostly novels, was not actually a hundred percent officially condoned, from what I understand. But except, okay, I'm a little shaky on the history myself. Um, I haven't read up on it in depth, but um, I do believe it was other people wrote books on the extended universe. And I do think Disney used some of that in their newest stuff, referencing it. Um, But ultimately it was not canon. If you know that term. Yes. Yeah. 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 Although I I mean, Star Wars, Disney has destroyed canon. I think already a little bit, but um Sure, but that's the problem is they have the official license. They have the right to say it's canon. 
That's why there's a argument about death of the author. Right. Right. I mean, I, I hate to cite the music industry as an example here, but I will. <laughs> uh, at least the music industry kind of figured out. Um, I don't know that they've done it well, but it seems like they've done it better. They figured out that there is they, they because they have a licensing structure set up for derivative work. Right. So mm -hmm. there's a difference between the mechanicals and um, and like the, the so let's say like there's the there's a person who writes the music. Um, there's a person who performs the music. Um, if you want, you can license for different things. I think a lot of this is uh, just licensing organizations that have set up to do this. I don't think it's, you know, the government necessarily doing it, but there is collaboration with uh, copyright office here. And so um, it's kind of set up so that we expect someone to do a cover and who gets paid like, well, you know, you played the horns in the original, but you didn't write the original. So you don't get paid for the cover, but the person who wrote the original does get something right. And so it's, it's kind of set up for, for that. And even we had, there were some hiccups with electronic music and a lot of sampling. Um, but even now I think a lot of sampling is, is easier to license and people sample stuff and got to get away with it. And it's, it's cheaper. Um, so maybe you could like redesign the uh, IP model in, in other creative industries to recognize that like, look, there is going to be derivative work. Um, something needs to get paid to the original person for this, but not everyone. So like, you know, if you write a, a Star Wars thing, well, okay, someone does own the concept originally George Lucas, I guess, until he sold it. Uh, but that's different than um, using a screenshot or actual clips from a movie. Do you know what I'm saying? I suppose so. I don't, I don't know how to solve. I honestly, I don't, I don't know how to solve it's it. It's a really uh, tricky one because unlike actual physical, like patents with technology, where there's like an actual object that functions a certain way involved. Um, you're talking about stuff that just comes out of the imagination. There's the physical rendering. You write a thing or you draw a thing or you compose a thing. Um, but ultimately, once that's out there, it can be replicated indefinitely, especially with the advent of the Internet. Yeah, I mean so, it's impossible to yeah, it's impossible to stop. I yeah. I do agree with that. Um it is impossible to stop. However, I I mean I like art and I want there to be an incentive for someone to and like a monetary real monetary incentive. If someone if someone invents Star Wars, which I liked the original stuff, if someone invents right. Star Wars. I want them to make billions of dollars and I want no one else to be able to steal it from them. Like, that's what I want. Like, I want that universe. I want it to be that if you write Harry Potter, you get Harry Potter. Um, I think, I think there's, I, I, I think that's inspiring to people. And I think, I think there's some, some sure. justice inherent in that. Um, now, how much Star Wars, like how much do you get? Can you, what can you, can you stop people from writing fan fiction? Can you like, I don't, I don't know where that line is. Um, can you say, well, I'm, you know, I invented the characters, therefore you can never write about the characters. 
I don't know. Maybe you can never write. You can never make money off of the characters. Is usually the way it, it works. But you, they you, they leave you alone if you just write fan fiction. Um, I don't. I don't know. But but again, the double edged sword thing. I'll say. Let's say that you. Let's say that you sit down after this conversation, and you invent. You write the next. I, don't, I hate to say Harry Potter because I don't really like Harry Potter, but Harry Potter is popular. So you write the next Harry mm-hmm. Potter. Um, okay. And I want you to, I want you to be in control of that. I want you to have creative control of that. Cause it's, it's yours. It's your creation. I want you to decide uh, if you're going to sell the rights to a movie studio. I want you to decide who and how and under what terms, if you're going to let people re- make comic books out of, I want you out of it. I want you to decide if you're, if there's going to be follow on novels, if you want to write them, I want that to be you. If you want to let someone else do it, I want that to be in your control. Cause it's, it's, that's something that you created and you brought forth. If we don't, if we allow, if we open this up and you're successful, Disney will sweep in, they'll spend a billion dollars out marketing you, and they will usurp your IP. And no one will know about you anymore. You will you will cease to lose. Yeah, there'll be some nerds who are like, you know, Lord Coley wrote the original one, blah, 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 blah. No one will care. It will be marketed out the wazoo by Disney, and that'll be the end of it. And Disney's version will be all that remains. I don't think that I'm trying to suggest that there wouldn't be some sort of legal recourse if somebody oh. is outright copying you or trying to extend the universe officially. Um, I think what I'm more trying to say is, well, one, there is an incentive to go after people for even small things because you're at risk of losing your copyright if you don't oh, go if after you don't pursue people. it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I do think that's a problem. I, I disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you could get rid of that easily and say, look, yeah. look. And that that's a standard contract clause for most contracts. Like a waiver of one individual thing does not constitute a continuing waiver. But like that's right. a standard legal language. Like, yeah, just because I didn't go after you for stealing, it doesn't mean that I can't later or that you don't, that, that I'm like somehow releasing this into the public domain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that section of it, uh, the incentive to go after those things. I mean, uh, there was that famous, semi-famous case where Disney went after somebody for putting Spider-Man on their child's headstone because they really, really liked that character. And uh, theoretically, if they had not gone after them, they could have opened themselves up legally to losing their copyright supposedly yep. i haven't read the laws myself uh just putting that was that their argument there. anyway right? yeah um yeah. And, and i am not a lawyer so i don't know if that's true either but i remember that argument yeah right um i do think though that perhaps if the laws were altered somewhat so that people who are doing something entirely different like maybe they're using completely original characters but using the same setting so Here we're using the world laws of this particular Marvel property, but these are all brand new characters. And, um, and then we're not even, I'm not even saying that these people are getting money for creating this work, because even if you don't make money, people can come after you. Um, I, I also don't believe that, any of these kind of alternative works, even if you are using some of the original characters, I think 
the the bigger problem is in trademark because the trademark is what confuses people when when yeah. a person sees two identical things and they can't tell what's the real the quote real thing that's where you run into problems i think you could still tackle this issue with trademark but uh having the copyright being so what's the word it's stringent and it, it's very yeah, strict stringent it's, it's yeah. very good yeah um, it, it just, I don't think it's very helpful. I think that there's actually a lot to say about fan works advertising for the original creator. Sure. Yeah. You don't know how much money the original creator is going to lose by allowing these alternative works, but you also don't know how much money they're going to lose by not allowing them. How many people will get funneled into the original going, Oh, this is based on something. Maybe I should go look at that original something since it inspired yep. somebody. Um, yeah, I, th I think you're hitting on something. I mean, you, you should definitely, I think loosening the, the requirement to um, protect your copyright is important. Um, I think, I think you could have different rules for like, uh, well, a like making money or not. I think you could have different rules for identifying yourself as like, well, this is, this isn't the, like, if you say this isn't the official, but right. I'm doing it like, okay, well, that's something different. Like you've, you've made that clear. So there's not trademark confusion. Right. And I think you could probably have an argument where like, what's actually creatively enough to copyright. Like, so when you say like, oh, we're not using any of the Marvel characters, but it's in the Marvel universe. I don't even know what that means. Like, like, it's like, is that even, should that even be trademarkable? What you have a universe in mind? Like, I don't know <laughs> what that is <laughs> like. So, um, you know, I guess I guess maybe the analogy I can think of is like if I if I start writing something that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and there's lightsabers and Jedi involved, but no character that you recognize, you might want to say, well, that's that's unique to Star Wars and blah, 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 blah. But um, yeah, we well, I mean, have an interesting example existent right now, which is playing video games for people online. Um mm -hmm. Generally, that's considered a gray area right now in law. Yes, in law, technically, anybody who created the original video game can come after you for playing that game. They just generally don't because right. it's great advertising. And a lot of the people who watch these video games either A, cannot afford those games, so you're not losing their money because they simply just don't have the funds to give you in the first place. Right. Um, B, people who don't even like video games, they just like the stories they hear from the video games, so they watch it more like a passive media rather than an interactive media, and that's how they take the thing in. Um, I don't see original game developers specifically sitting down with their own game and playing it for people just in case you didn't want to buy the game. Here's a playthrough for you. <laughs> I, I don't see that being a thing like a pay-per-view kind of situation necessarily. It's an interesting idea, maybe under the current laws, but it's not done. It's not right. something that, that the companies are doing. Um, in fact, a lot of independent creators of video games are thrilled when a well-known YouTuber picks up their game and shows it to a bunch of people. Because three, in my experience, lots of people will see a thing 
monkey see, monkey do. They'll, they'll see the thing and go, wow, that looks fun. I want to engage with it in an interactive level because yeah. I've seen somebody else having fun with it. Now I want to play it too. Um, it's a slightly different uh, format than just music or drawings or a movie because that is a passive media but i do think that this example sets up a very tangible argument for changing how we look at ip in general this kind of ip yeah i mean i think i think you'd be hard pressed to make an argument that watching a video game prevents someone from buying it uh (laughs) that probably doesn't happen or even waylays them from buying it right um so yeah and it probably has the opposite friendly because there's a lot of people who are on the fence about said game x game whatever they're like i've heard about this it seems like it might be my kind of thing but i've also heard some other stuff they see somebody else play it and they go oh yeah that's for me or maybe they go oh that's not for me you're actually saving yourself a little bit of pain technically the original company would be losing the money because the person didn't purchase the thing to try it. But you also don't have a butthurt person saying this thing sucks. Don't buy it in a venomous tone. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think step one is to probably reduce, like, you know, get rid of this, these requirements that you have to be enforcing your IP. You have to be going after Cause I think that that right. creates perverse incentives. And I think, look, I mean, like you said, a lot of game developers don't care. I think in the free market, uh, you know, you might not need to change much. Like if they don't have to go after, they probably by default, you might just get what you want. Like they might, most game developers would be like, yeah. Or, or the people would, would realize like, Oh, this is, this is in my best interest. I don't feel like I need to go pursue this. I don't feel like I need to go right. after these people at all. And like, this is, this is helping me. I'm not gonna, you know, if you're a game developer or, you know, you're, you're, creative person, you know, writing, even if you've got, uh, even if you've granted your IP to a larger company, it's, it's a waste of time and energy for them to be going after people who put Spider-Man on kids' graves. Like that's not, that's, that costs them more in lawyers time than they could possibly have made out of it, except for the legal, you know, unless there's a legal, uh, perverse incentive that's been, uh, that's been foisted upon them, in which case they're behaving that way because of the system, which can be fixed. Yeah. So Uh, going back a little bit to what you said, do you really think that it's clearly in the zone of theft? If somebody creates a derivative work that would never in a million years be offered by the original work? I don't, I don't know what it means to say would never be offered. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, give me, give me an example worth Harry Potter, where you're hundred percent certain that, uh, JK Rowling would never do it. Um, I mean, I guess speaking in absolutes in this way is kind of a moot point. You you can't know that you just cannot determine that. But I think um, Harry Potter, but all the characters are squids, would be very unlikely for the original okay, work so, to come so, up with. Right. But so let so let me let me throw this out there though. But he, and here's why I, this is one of the things I I this is why I like intellectual property or why, why I support it fundamentally. If I were her, 
Um, even if I never planned to make Harry Potter porn, I wouldn't want people making Harry Potter porn. It would undermine mm-hmm. the the legitimacy and credibility of the Harry universe Potter's I was trying to create. A bad example right? for that one, considering all the underageness. But sorry, fair, Go fair. Ahead. But you know what I mean. Like, like maybe I felt the same way about squids. Maybe I think squids are icky and yucky and horrible, and I sure. never want anyone to make with squids. Like, well, okay, that's that's my that's my thing. Uh, I don't I don't want people making the characters with squids. Now, I again, if we're in kind of a a, a situation in which she doesn't gain anything for going after you, like she doesn't ha- she doesn't have to go after you in any particular way to protect any other interest, and you do a Harry Potter play with squids uh, at your local theater, like is she going to come after you? Probably not. Should she be allowed to? Maybe, but like the damages would be pretty limited, I would think. Like, like you'd have sure. to weigh like how much would that actually hurt her, right? Um, and at some point there's just no damage at some point you, you just, you make an argument, like depending on what it is that you're doing at some point, there's just no, she's just, she doesn't suffer any damage, right? Reputationally, financially or anything. So, right. But the, the thought here though, is, uh, is it, would it be outright theft? Because I'm not sure if it would be outright theft. Um, I know that there's a lot of mm. creative works out there that, uh, borrow a concept, but it's in a completely new medium. Um, yeah, that, I, I would know. say it's not outright theft. And I, and I would say outright theft is a hard word to use with, re, with respect to intellectual property when it's, when you're doing something derivative. Um, sure. I, like der- derivative works are almost never outright theft. Right. Um, and the Definitely question that. Borrowing. Have, yeah. Well, I mean, look, it is. And the question we have to answer is which i don't think is is straightforward philosophically and i don't think it's obvious is like how much is enough like if like if i take your harry potter book and i change harry's name to ralph and publish it that's a derivative work uh and i have the series of ralph potter and it's like well it's derivative but very slightly it's mostly outright theft (laughs) right whereas if I write a completely different story of Man of Magician and his name happens to be Harry, it's basically not derivative at all. And you'd have to make right. it be a really hard case to say that I got it from Harry Potter. So um, I, I, and it's a great, it's a, there's gradations there and I don't think it's super clear. And I think these are, these are hard, uh, these are hard questions to struggle with. And I, I think the, my, because of my, bias here i think the free market could handle them uh pretty well uh it's one of those unfortunate things where i do believe it is very case by case basis something mm-hmm. that law is not really well suited to as it stands because once something goes through a court case it's considered precedent it can be referenced it can be like this is the hard line see they did it here um yep. and you've got lawyers bickering about which way to go based on that precedent and precedent really great once the thing's been proven out a certain way it supposedly makes things easier going forward but i don't think that it's helpful in the area of creative ip no i think it's real i think you're right i think it's very difficult because there's there's just so many uh there's so many different iterations and different um permutations of what can be done 
but it's really really difficult to look at um to look at precedent and gain anything out of it really and you know and i think part of it is you know if we were if we're in a let's just imagine a world in which people cared about um the artists getting their due but uh, -huh. uh but they they weren't forced to do anything i mean you you might you might imagine a world in which people are like yeah you know what lord lord coley just stole that from jk rowling i'm gonna boycott her like just a voluntary i'm not gonna pay her anything like she just that's right. a clear ripoff right um and we she already live in that world that. 50 shades of gray exists <laughs> i never read it thankfully uh but sure um but yeah, I mean, Neither I, I, I think I've just seen videos going over the comparisons of the movie and the book, like lots of videos. It was a huge topic for a bit there. Wait, what was it supposedly a ripoff of? Twilight. Oh, see, I didn't watch or read Twilight either. So it's like I, yeah. my personal theory is that Twilight is derivative of the Vampire Diaries. Oh yeah, probably. Everybody I think we has had this conversation on yeah, Alex's we did. Uh, we did. show. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cheeky Mara asks: Are deep fakes going to be copyright infringement or ID theft in the future? That's well. Why not both? Um, it's definitely a using a person's famous likeness or likeness at all, and that's a whole issue. Um, using somebody's likeness without permission it's generally passed on in parody um and satire but even then people in parody and satire get in trouble yeah South and we're Park seeing some trouble yeah and and we're seeing that culturally we're we're kind of unable to tell when things are parodies i mean you're getting fact checks for babylon b articles so clearly <laughs> there's a large segment of society that's not sure what's a parody um or what's satire so, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a good, uh, G man says it will be impossible to stop deep fakes. You stamp one down and 10 more will pop up. Yeah. I, I think deep fakes are like technologically, that's a super interesting topic about where we'll be. I think the ultimately, um, the, it's just going to be massive skepticism is what's going to like, people are just not going to believe that's anything. what I'm hoping for. I honestly think yeah. that if we get to that point, and it becomes a widely known thing that people will finally start going, is this real? Right. I just don't believe it. Yeah. 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 I, I think they might. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, anything else or should we, should we wrap it up? I don't think we solved anything, by the way. No, I don't <laughs> think we did either. I just think it's an incredibly interesting, worthwhile topic. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, I agree. And uh, yeah, I just don't don't know how to solve it. So neither of us yeah. are lawyers or uh, lawmakers or politicians. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, and I, I, I the reason I think it's interesting is it's not a like philosophically. The, it's kind of like abortion to me in that there's philosophically some clear lines at either end of it. And then there's a huge gray area where I'm like, I don't know, that's really tough. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's, I don't think it's obvious. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's one of those things that would be nice to, to have to hash out and figure out as, as a society. Um, so. I think that a lot of things need to be a bit more kind and permissive towards each other, but not like 
step all over the the original creator kind of way just in a way that allows things to exist to be built upon to be altered to to be played with i think most creators in my experience that i've met are that way um it's typically uh it's the it's the large and I, I hate to be like I'm not I'm not anti large corporation fundamentally, but like sure. it tends to be the large corporations who who acquire the IP rights that are much more ruthless about enforcing them than it is about. Well, they pay you know, so much money creative. for the for the license and rights and stuff like that to in the first place. So yeah. of course they're going to be protective when they spent that much money. They've assigned a value to it that they very much have incentive to defend right right and if there are legal reasons why they need to defend stuff like you were saying then then that makes sense but uh maybe we should get an ip lawyer on here sometime and and have a conversation that would be fun Uh, yeah yeah um all right well cool thank you lord coley uh thank you conversation yeah um let's see it is, uh, it's almost time to end, but I'm going to, I see one question from Greg the Baritone, who's always in here, and I want I don't want to, I don't want to ignore Greg. Plus, he says funny stuff, so he should get, he should get some love. Um, he says, Carter, if you start your own company, how can you maneuver diversity without falling into DEI? Well, first of all, you don't have to worry about it until you're a certain size, like Cheeky Mare was hitting 150 or whatever. They're, like, when you're small, there's no requirement. Uh, I think uh, managing diversity to me is not a thing. Like uh, it's, it's managing the government that matters. Uh, it's managing, you know, the getting in trouble. Um, you know, if, if I was going to try and grow a large company and, and get up to a number where that mattered, where I would, we'd get in trouble, uh, it, it would not be about making sure that my, workforce had some particular ethnic mix it would be about uh making sure we don't get in trouble and that we're hiring the best people <laughs> the end um so i think the the vector to be careful of is obviously the hr department as cheeky mentioned um you know you, you as hard as it is you find the ron swanson like the cheeky's company right like find find an hr person who is 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 more understanding of that culturally and you gotta you gotta guard the HR department ruthlessly. Like they, they, that's where the, uh, the necrosis starts. And, um, and then I would, and you know, again, kind of similar to my advice to cheeky would be when you get that big and you have to start doing with it. Cause you, when you reach a certain size, there are rules. Um, I, I probably would just make the colorblind argument and, and document the process and make sure that we were reviewing it and doing everything that we possibly could to to demonstrate that we are not taking race into account. And uh, if someone wanted to take me to court for not taking race into account, I think that would be a fascinating battle. Uh, So that's a battle I would happily fight publicly. Uh, The you're not being racist battle. Uh, I think it might, I think you might prevail. So... Um, someone says, oh, Greg again says, I've seen diversity and inclusion departments at large companies leave out equity. Have any companies actually implemented merit, fairness, and equity? I don't know if anyone's implemented merit, fairness, and I think you mean equality. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we need, honestly, (laughs) 
I hate HR departments generally. I don't think we need all of this crap. We don't need acronyms and like cute slogans about like fairness and equality. And blah, 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 blah. You're, you know, you're making widgets, make widgets, hire the best people, be transparent, treat people well, be done. You don't need to have like, you know, you don't need to do all this gobbledygook virtue signaling about like how you do this and that. Like just, you know, <laughs> make your widgets, say we hire the best people, we pay them <laughs> enough to keep them around. Uh, and we, we were merit based. I mean, if you want to read, read, um, I know we all, we're all supposed to hate Netflix, but I really do like no rules rules, uh, which is Reed Hoffman's, uh, management book. He talks about Netflix management philosophy. I actually really like, uh, the book and in his, in his philosophy there. And, um, he doesn't, I don't think he talks about equity and, and that stuff. And maybe the book predates when that was, when that became hip to talk about, but, um, yeah, it's basically like, look, it's very individual. It's, it's like the, the whole philosophy is individual responsibility. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the philosophy that I would adopt and then say, you know, come in, we're going to hire the best people. We're going to give them uh, enough rope to hang themselves or climb a mountain and we'll see which one they do. And like, that's kind of the philosophy there to paraphrase. All right. Wait till, wait till people start suing each other in the metaverse. <laughs> Someone in chess as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you what do you get? You get tokens if you win. I don't know. There will be lawsuits in the metaverse. All right. Okay. I think we're done. Uh, thanks everyone for sticking around. Uh, thank you, especially to Cheeky Mayor and to Lord Coley who came on to chat. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I love doing those. We're gonna try and do these, you know, as often as we can. Um Maybe we should have given you guys a little bit more heads up uh, lead time. So we'll try and give you more lead time for the next one. But uh, again, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the questions, conversations, uh, all that kind of stuff. Thank you to those of you, those of you who support us at uh, unsafespace.com. Uh, means a lot. Speaking of companies, <laughs> we're like kind of a company, but not really a company because basically... I heard that companies aren't supposed to, you're not supposed to have to write a check personally to companies every month to keep them going. Um, that's the rumor. So uh, <laughs> I'm continuing to do that. So it'd be nice to not have to do that. So, hey, to the extent that you can help us out, please do that. In addition to this show, Dangerous Thoughts, um, anything you do to help us out does support our other series. Uh, Rebel Civics, I think, was, was uh, that, that's how every, almost every Wednesday as well. Uh, and I think today's episode earlier was... Uh, Keith released the, an abridged version of the Declaration of Independence. On Tuesdays, we have 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli, which is a show about big tech and censorship. On Mondays, I co-host a show called Narrative Dissonance with Juliet Dillon, where we talk about uh, how the mainstream media is lying to you. And tomorrow, every Thursday, Token Minority Report happens with Beverly and Alex um, as your host. And tomorrow, after Token Minority Report, you heard Lord Coley mention streaming games. Uh, that's because she knows what's going on. Uh, tomorrow, after Token Minority Report, we are going to try and do, in our Discord server, so if you're not in Discord, well, oh well, uh, but in our Discord server tomorrow, we're going to try and stream, uh, what is it called, Left 4 Dead 2? I think that's the name of it, right, Beverly? Yeah. 
Uh, we're gonna we're gonna play Left for Dead Two. I'm gonna try and be there. My schedule's a little wonky because uh, I'm a I've got a, an infant baby, so sometimes I gotta you know stop killing zombies or or my my co-players and go take care of the baby. Um, usually the NPC does better, so when I leave the game, the party usually succeeds a little bit better. So I'll try and leave the game as often as possible if we're we're having if we're having a tough time. Um, but anyway, we're going to try to do that tomorrow night. So if you want to join that on the Discord server, you can. Um, and our next book club is this book, Fossil Future, by Alex Epstein. And that's August 14th. So if you want to start, you want to read that, you want to join book club, uh, get on it. Start reading the book. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening. And we'll see you next time. Hey, oh. just wanted to add to Move that. On. Another thing yes. is this Name here. movie club. So... That I think oh, when when is Bad Movie Club? Going to be the same day as uh, Book Club, but that night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Oh, okay. So a good book, bad movie. That's the that's, yeah, that's, that's the 14th. All right. I forget what it is. It's Double Dragon. I think I don't know. I'm just going in order of what people suggest. So. Oh, okay. All right. And the last one was Roadie. Okay. So, which I didn't see. All right. You heard it from Beverly. Have a good night, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production is known by the state of California to cause unregulated ideation that may be harmful to bureaucrats. Association with the following individuals, or tacos, is strictly prohibited. Apropos of nothing, I was just wondering how would you feel about another pandemic? Your president is in full control of his mental faculties. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.